you tonight why you came to church? How would you respond to that question? Well, I imagine there would probably be as many different answers represented here in this room as there are people here. But I think what it all boils down to is when we come to church, we're really looking to be blessed. Some of us are looking for the blessing of edification. We want to learn something from God's Word, take away something from this time in terms of knowledge and insight that we never had before. Still others are looking for encouragement to create and and enter into relationships that can truly lead them into a deeper walk with God and a more consistent experience of His love. Still others are looking for a shot of energy. I mean, it's a big, bad world out there and it can really suck you dry if you're not careful. And, And so some people come to church looking for these sort of things. And in the best and purest sense of the term, church should be a place where we receive all of these blessings and more. But oftentimes, this place, this entity that we gather together in known as the church, something that should be the most safe place, ends up being the least safe place. Because oftentimes, instead of encouragement, we can find discouragement. Instead of edification, we can find deception. Instead of being energized by the experience of being among God's people, we can walk out of a fellowship situation feeling more drained than when we arrived. Well, Jesus told us that this kind of phenomena of expecting much but receiving little really shouldn't surprise us. You see, within the church, you will encounter real and genuine believers and you will encounter some individuals who are clever counterfeits. In the book of Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. See, Jesus didn't pull any punches. In the body of Christ, you will encounter believers who are the real deal, and you will encounter individuals who are just clever knockoffs pious phonies who are there to spoil and ruin your faith. And you know, when I talk to believers who have been around the church for any length of time, it seems like I encounter people who will share with me stories of just how their encounters with these very convincing but counterfeit kind of Christians have really thrown them for a loop. Well, what does God's Word have to say about protecting ourselves from being the next victim spiritually. Well, tonight, in a Bible study that we could call Avoiding Spiritual Abuse, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to gain three very important insights, I believe, into the whole subject of how people are led astray in the church, how very sincere, very well-intentioned Christians can oftentimes end up spiritual roadkill, for lack of a better term. We'll also discover a few things about how we can avoid that happening to us. We're going to see tonight, first of all, a section of Scripture that I think we could call the portrait of spiritual abuse. How to recognize spiritual abuse 
when it comes knocking on our door, even when it's dressed up in the most holy clothing you can imagine. Secondly, we're going to see the prescription for spiritual abuse. How we are to respond when we find ourselves staring down the barrel of a situation where all the God talk may be going on, but God is strangely absent. And finally, we are going to see the product of spiritual abuse. We're going to discover tonight that God Himself is full well able to deal with those individuals who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that we don't need to waste our time allowing them to live rent-free in our minds, repeating the painful memories of the past. We're going to learn tonight how to release the damage that is done by spiritual abusers here in this passage tonight. Hopefully what we're going to discover when it's all said and done, it's kind of like an awful lot of destructive relationships we can get into in this world. Spiritual abuse can only happen if there are two willing parties, an abuser and a person who allows themselves to be abused. Let's learn how we can vaccinate ourselves and protect ourselves from this kind of phenomena that unfortunately is raging in epidemic proportions in our day and age. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open this section of 1 Samuel to us. Father, we come before You, Lord, not because we've got our act together, far from it. Not because we have never made mistakes or or allowed uh, ideas and concepts that are contrary to Your Word into our hearts and minds. But Lord, we come to You tonight not on the basis of our having our act together, but on the basis of knowing that You are the Good Shepherd of the sheep that You are the One who watches over the flock. And that, Lord, You can, through Your rod and staff comforting us, bring us to a place where we're close to You. And if we're close to You as the Good Shepherd, then we needn't worry about the wolves. Help us tonight to learn exactly what it means to sit at Your feet, not to stray far away, not to listen to the siren songs of the world or, or allow something that's new and different to tickle our ears. But instead, Lord, help us to find our strength, our security, our stability in nothing else and nothing less than a relationship with You that is securely and firmly founded on Your Word. Lord, do that work among us tonight. And I pray if there are any here who are still wounded, perhaps, from encounters with people who look good but were anything but on the inside, You would do a healing in their hearts tonight. Thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, you know that we've been following along with the family story of a very interesting couple indeed, a man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah. Well, in that day and age, it wasn't just Elkanah and Hannah. We discovered that there was a third party involved here, a woman named Peninnah. And because of that, there was a real rivalry involved. Peninnah was a fertile woman, able to have children. Hannah was not. But Hannah was the more beloved of the two wives, and that wasn't lost on her rival. And so within this home, we saw this kind of civil war going on, a civil war that was only settled when Hannah brought her burden before the Lord. And we saw the Lord delivering Hannah by basically providing counsel from one of the most effective ministers I think we see recorded in the Word of God, a fellow named Eli. He saw Hannah mouthing her prayer to God so consumed with the burden of her heart that she couldn't even express it in words. And 
he mistook her for being another drunk hanging around at the sanctuary of God. He began to preach to her his standard temperance sermon, only to find out he was barking up the wrong tree. And so he said to her some interesting words. He said, basically, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition which you've asked of him. And then the scripture says something interesting. Hannah walked away and she was no longer sad. We discovered last week why she was no longer sad. Because God had spoken to her heart. God had let her know in a way far deeper than any pastor or any uh, program could ever minister to her that everything was going to be okay. It was a personal touch of God's Holy Spirit. And the personal touch of God's Spirit had practical impact. For too long, Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, which literally means heard of the Lord. And so, she remembered her vow before God that if God would grant her a son, He would dedicate that son to His service as long as he lived. And she followed through on that. And in following through on that, she expressed her joy in a remarkable way, in a psalm of praise, in a prayer that we saw recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah not only rejoiced before the Lord, but received an incredible revelation. She was the first one to refer to God's promised deliverer by the name Messiah, the Anointed One. She saw a vision of the future. A child would be provided in a very unusual way that would cause her experience of receiving a child in a very unusual way to pale in comparison. And so she offered her praise to God and she followed through on her commitment. She committed her boy's raising and upkeep to this man, Eli. He would serve the Lord and minister to the Lord before Eli the priest from the time he was three years old on up. And that's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12. Everything sounds wonderful and everything sounds good. Everything sounds very spiritual. And it was with Hannah, but it certainly wasn't at the place where Hannah left her little boy. In verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read these words. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the fish hook, flesh hook brought up, I should say. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, uh, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now, very interesting description of an ancient form of a spiritually abusive circumstance. Here we see these two men, these two sons of the high priest Eli. Eli was getting up in years, and as we'll find out a little bit later in the book of 1 Samuel, was hardly a guy who took care of himself really well physically on top of it. And so he had delegated the nuts and bolts of the priesthood to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Very interesting names in Hebrew. Hophni means a mouth of brass. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what that meant, but maybe Hophni was a colicky baby and, and earned that name early on. Phinehas, on the other hand, meant a boxer. 
someone who was contentious. And so you had these two individuals who are running the show under Eli. Now, try to imagine this. If you were an Israelite and you were going to worship God, you were going to offer sacrifice as the law of Moses prescribed, there was only one place you could go. There was only one family that you could deal with, Eli and his sons. And as you approached this tabernacle, you would look at it and it would be everything that was described in the Word of God. If from a distance you saw these two priests going about their duties and directing the other people in their assigned duties, it would all look very spiritual to you. If you saw Hophni and Phinehas up close and spoke with them, you would see that they were wearing the outfits of a priest. They looked like a priest. They were saying all the right words of a priest. It looked like the real deal. They even had the authority of someone who was God's high priest, a guy like Eli, giving them the thumbs up. These are guys you should listen to. They should be the source of your spiritual guidance. Everything looked good except for one thing. The Scripture says that Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were corrupt in your New King James Bible. They did not know the Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They had everything going for them but one thing. They didn't know the God that people were there to worship. Now, that's a minor problem. In fact, it was such a problem, the word corrupt that we see in verse 12 is very fascinating. It literally means they were sons of Belial. That is the way it would be translated most literally from the Hebrew. Now, the word Belial means literally of no profit. They were worthless individuals. And so the New King James renders this corrupt. But the term Belial takes on an even greater significance when we check out its New Testament usage. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul used the word Belial to describe Satan himself. And so we see a very interesting insight here. Like Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either a son of God or you are a son of the wicked one. And these sons of the wicked one were in a position where they served as priests before the Lord. Hey, they looked like the real deal. They talked like the real deal. They had all the relationships that you would think that they were the real deal. But they didn't have a heart. Now, this is where spiritual abuse begins, gang. Just because someone stands before a pulpit, just because someone flaps open a Bible before they begin to speak, does not mean that they have a relationship with God. Just because someone has a degree on the wall from a theological seminary does not mean their heart is right with God. Just because everybody else seems to sit in a room and smile and nod and say, oh yeah, that guy's right on, doesn't mean that the guy is right on. It is so important for us to understand that we as human beings look on the outward appearance, but what God is most concerned about is the human heart. Because appearances can and will fool you. If you don't believe that's true, turn with me in your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul dealing with the whole issue of the devastating impact that false prophets and false teachers had had in his day makes this very chilling observation. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13 says this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. 
And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Well, folks, once again, just because someone looks like the real deal doesn't mean they are the real deal. Well, you might be saying, well, that makes me good and paranoid. How do I know that anybody's really right with God? I mean, after all, you can't see a human heart, can you? I mean, can I trust anybody? I mean, are all pastors phonies? Are they all out to lunch? No. But understand this. There's two things that can keep you from kind of chasing your tail over all of this. First of all, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. By their fruit, you will know them. Hey, you can fool some of the people some of the time. Maybe you can fool all of the people some of the time. Maybe people who want to be fooled will keep on following you all of the time. But you can't fool God. And sooner or later, God is going to make manifest who's right on and who's not. Who's walking with Him and who's not. And you can take a look and sort of examine the fruit that comes out of someone's life. Do you see the presence of the Holy Spirit? Do you see the presence of God's love within their life? Very important thing to keep in mind. The second thing, though, because false teachers can be so deceptive, because they can look so good and be so off, and let's face it, you know, there's nothing that is more deceptive than deception. You know? I mean, the best deceivers in the world are going to be the ones that really pass themselves off well. I mean, if someone came up to you, you know, and offered you change with a yellow dollar bill with, you know, say a picture of Alfred E. Newman on the front of it instead of, you know, whatever denomination you were looking for, you go, well, this isn't right. It's the one that looks like the real deal that gets you. So how do you avoid being taken in by a clever counterfeit? Well, here is how you can save yourself untold grief. Never, ever, please hear me now, never, ever put your faith in a pastor. Never, ever put your faith in a church. Because I'm here to tell you, I'm a pastor and I hang around church a lot. And here's a news flash for you. Pastors and churches, sooner or later and probably in a devastating way, will let you down. Because you were never intended to put your faith in a pastor. You were never intended to put your faith in a church. The only things that will never let you down in this world are your relationship with Jesus Christ and His Word. That's where your faith needs to be. And if your faith is in there, even if you've got a Hophni and Phineas situation going on, where they're wearing the right clothes, they're saying the right things, they're doing the right things, they know the right people. If your faith is in God, and those people who look so good on the outside are really sons of Belial on the inside, it's not going to matter to you. Because your faith isn't in them anyway. Your faith is in Jesus. And Him first and foremost. So, very important thing to understand. Just because someone's in the right position and says the right things and looks like the real item doesn't necessarily mean it's so. And how did this falsity, this internal counterfeit nature manifest itself? Well, in verses 13 and following, we saw what was going on. As the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron and pot, and the priest would take for himself from that flesh hook all that he brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, you've got to understand what they were doing, first of all. While the meat was boiling, 
they would have one of their servants come on by and they'd have a big old hook and they would stick it in there and they'd take some of the meat out of the pot. Basically, there was nothing wrong with a priest being supported by a portion of the sacrifices that people would bring and offer to God. The Scriptures mandated that. But what these guys were doing was this. They weren't waiting until the sacrifice was over. They were looking around and finding the choice cuts of meat. They weren't taking the prescribed pieces that God said the priests could eat. They were going for the filet mignon. They were going for the T-bone stuff, you see. They didn't really care about someone worshiping God. They cared about what their next meal was going to be like. In verse 16, we are told, if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, and the Scripture was really explicit, that when you would offer a burnt offering to the Lord, the fat belonged to God. That was a very important thing in terms of an offering. They'd say, no, 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 you give it to me. And if someone put up a fuss, they said, you give it to me now or we'll take it by force. We'll have Rocco and Louie here. Make sure that you're given what you should be given to us. A very important thing to understand here. The conduct of spiritual abuse is easy to spot. One of the dead giveaways that you are in a spiritually abusive situation is this. The people who are quote-unquote involved in the ministry are more concerned with their piece of the pie than God's. They are more concerned with your money than they are with your heart. The Scripture warns us of this sort of thing. We'll get more in depth with this uh, in our weekend Bible studies in the book of 1 Timothy, but turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me real quick. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 gives us a red light warning that should go off in our minds when we begin to see somebody beginning to demonstrate some of these characteristics of a false teacher. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3 says this, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, is there anything wrong with giving to a church? No, there's nothing wrong with giving to a church. Is there anything wrong with, say, a pastor receiving his livelihood from the tithes and offerings that come into the church? No, if you were with us in our study of 1 Timothy last week, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we see that that is something that God approves of. But when does it become wrong? It becomes wrong when money becomes the focus. When they spend more time talking about what's in your wallet than what's in your heart. And we've probably all had experiences in situations like this. You know, usually where the rubber meets the road in circumstances like this is when churches get into building programs. I mean, believe me, I've been in churches that are in the middle of building programs and inevitably what happens is that a church gets all excited about doing a building program and they, they hear from some consultant that says, we can come in and boy, if we use our time-tested techniques, we can raise X amount of money. You only have to give us 30% for coming in. And so they go, wow, we only have to give them 30%. So they bring in the consultants. And the consultants have meetings with people all over the church. And they start taking over, say, the small group Bible studies. And, 
and things like that. And it's always talking about this program and it always has vision for greatness or building for God's glory or, or you know, they have these, these snappy uh, themes that they, they come along with these sort of things. And they twist people's arm to make these faith promise commitments. And that always makes me nervous because the Scripture says that when you give, you shouldn't let your right hand know what your left is doing. But in those circumstances, they always have you write down you know, exactly how much you're going to give and, and you know, they, they, they try to hold you to it. And what inevitably happens is that these consultants come in and say, ta-da, we've got all your faith promises here. Now all that has to happen is for your people to follow through and the money to roll in. Inevitably, they always come up with about two-thirds of the money they thought they were going to get. And then the panic sets in. And then it's all about money. And it's all about, oh, you know, uh, we were going to talk about this. But, you know, today we're going to be spending some more time talking about this passage on stewardship. And I'll tell you, it turns people off. And it should turn people off. Because, you know, something where God guides, God provides. God never calls us to shake people down. God never calls us to make people feel uncomfortable about money. I mean, we're so paranoid about that around here, we don't even take an offering here. We, we have agape boxes that are in the back for that purpose. Because we want to make sure that if you're going to give, you're, give, you're giving because you're led of the Lord. You're not giving grudgingly or under compulsion, but from a joyful heart before God. That's just between you and Him. You know, you don't even have to worry about an usher, you know, passing the plate and, you know, going, oh man, I'm hearing change again. We don't want to hear any change in those things, you know. And you want to believe how pastors get involved with these discussions. I mean, honest to goodness, I heard a pastor say that the offerings in the church, the total offering they brought in, went up by 30% when they put in metal-based offering plates because people were embarrassed to put change in them. They had to put bills or checks in them. And, you know, you go to these church growth seminars and they tell you all these things. And it's all about shaking people down for money. Sometimes it's not even subtle. Sometimes you'll go to these rallies and stuff like that and they'll say, all right, I want everybody in here to hold up your wallet for me now. Everybody get out your wallet and hold it up. You know, and then everybody's got their wallets out and then they say, okay, I want you to empty your wallet because that's a step of faith. And okay, everybody hold up your wallet and do that. Or, or you know, they'll, they'll go through these gyrations about, oh, the Lord's speaking to me. The Lord is sharing with me that there are five people here who will give $5,000 and... You know, I mean, I've seen these techniques. Have you seen this stuff on TV where they moan and cry and say, oh, if you don't give, we're going off the air and the kingdom of God is going to come to an end and these people won't be reached if you don't come through. Oh, you know, and the, you know, the mascara is running, you know, and the crocodile tears are going and, and all this stuff. Hey, please hear me on this. If the kingdom of God is going to come to an end because you didn't send in your money, then the kingdom of God is on really shaky ground. God does not need your money. God is not broke. God is not holding a mortgage note that needs to be paid. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And we believe something in Calvary Chapel circles that I think takes a lot of the pressure off. Where God guides, God provides. If the Lord wants us to be in a particular situation or have something going on, then He's going to provide for it. If the money's not there, then guess what? Maybe it's God's way of saying, no, I don't want you doing that right now. But you don't pull a Hophni and Phineas. You don't start shaking down the people. 
You don't start dangling them over the pit of hell saying, well, you know, if you can't give up your money to me, then your money's probably an idol. And, you know, if you've got idols in your life, then it's doubtful that you're saved. And people are, you know, shelling out the dough because they're worried their eternal salvation's on the line. Hey, all this stuff still goes on. And I see very sincere people, very tender-hearted people, people who are clearly wanting to do what's right before God, taken in by these shysters and these hucksters. And that's all they are. If someone thinks godliness is a means of gain, the Apostle Paul said this, withdraw yourselves from them. Don't support their ministry, such as it is. You know, don't go down that path. If you go down that path, then you have no one to blame for being spiritually abused but yourself. See, it takes two to tango. It takes a con man and someone willing to be con. And that's what was going on here. I mean, these people are kind of standing around going, well, I guess they know what they're doing. But you know, I thought that sacrifice was for the Lord. And there they go and carrying it off and they're inviting their friends over. Man, look at that barbecue they got going on over there and we don't have anything left to sacrifice for God. That's spiritual abuse, gang. It was going on then and it goes on now. Notice something else. The roots of all of this. Verse 17. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Notice what the root problem was here. What was it that got Hophni and Phinehas in all of this trouble? They had no fear of God. Now, I realize that we as believers in Christ have a love relationship with the Lord. And as the Scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. And God doesn't want you walking around thinking like there's a lightning bolt with your name on it ready to get you the minute you step out of line. God is a God of grace and God is a God of love. But there is something in the Scripture called the fear of the Lord. That is having an awe and respect for who God is. That is the fear of the Lord. It's realizing that we are in over our heads in this situation. This isn't just something that you and I get together and do, you see. This church isn't our church. This church isn't your church. This church is not my church. This is God's church. There's only one head of the church. Ephesians 4 says, that is Jesus Christ. And if He is the head of the church, then we had better be awfully sure that we are doing things in a way that honors Him. And you know, if you have that fear, that healthy, godly fear within your heart, you're not going to find yourself either being an abuser or being abused. Because the fear of man, Proverbs says, brings a snare. But with the fear of the Lord, there's deliverance. You see, oftentimes people end up being spiritually abused because they're afraid of what people might think. They're afraid that, you know, someone might look at them cross-eyed and say, well, I don't think you're saved at all. Hey, who cares if some man thinks you're saved or not saved? I'm here to tell you something. On Judgment Day, the final destination of your soul is not going to be determined by majority vote. Only one person's opinion is going to matter. And that's Jesus Christ. And if you're faithful to Him, then you're immune from this stuff. But if you start getting your eyes on people and you start feeling pressured and you start looking at you know, what they've got going, man, I'll tell you, the fear of man brings a snare. And it not only snares you, it snares these people who start cutting corners and start making these ethical compromises in order to keep some big trial balloon they've got going, going instead of trusting God. And so you're really not doing them any favors at all. You know, I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa. I'll never forget this. 
Pastor Chuck Smith received a letter in the mail, and he showed it to me. It was one of those really slick uh, fundraising letters, you know, the ones that are computerized. They have like the, you know, blue underlining under certain sections, and the computer personalizes the letter, so you really think it's coming straight to you. And it was from one of these television evangelist ministries. Unfortunately, the computer made a slight error. It addressed the letter to Calvary Chapel, and it had the address underneath. And it said, Dear Calvary, the Lord really laid you on my heart in my prayer closet this morning, Calvary. And Mr. Chapel, I just want you to know that I agonized in prayer over you for hours. And you know, then the least I think you could do would be to help us out a little bit in this financially lean time. And you know, Chuck Smith showed me this letter and he wrote a letter back. And the letter he wrote back was very simple and very succinct, but I think it really sums up the point we're trying to make here beautifully. Chuck Smith said, dear, and I'll skip the name, the only difference between you and me is this. I fear the Lord. If you don't fear God, then you're going to send out these kind of huckster letters and tell people you were praying for them. You can't even get their names straight. But God's not fooled. God's not conned. God sees all this stuff that's going on. And there are spiritually abusive situations. How do you keep yourself out of it? The fear of the Lord again. The fear of the Lord. Having that godly fear within your heart. In Psalm 34 and verse 11, listen to what a powerful protective force, the fear of the Lord, having your number one source of awe and respect, not on, a pe- on people, not on a program, not on a pastor, but on God Himself. Psalm 34 and verse 11 says this, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. See, if you fear the Lord, if you really understand there's a God out there who is keeping score, by the way, then that's going to affect the way you live your life. That's going to affect the decisions that you make. But if you just kind of say, well, it's all just kind of a game. Who knows if God's really out there or not? Then I'll tell you, sending out your customized letters and having people holding up their wallets and crying your crocodile tears on television starts sounding more and more reasonable. But you don't fear God. First step towards spiritual abuse is not having that fear of God within your heart. But notice something else in this section of Scripture. We not only see the problem of spiritual abuse, and it is a major problem, we also see the prescription for spiritual abuse, how to respond to it when it comes our way. Look at this contrast in verse 18. Here you've got Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, just really creating spiritual wreckage. But verse 18 says, But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. 
In this passage, I think we see three things that can keep us from falling into the trap of spiritual abuse. Three things that separated Samuel and his family from all of the craziness that was going on around the tabernacle. First of all, if you don't want to fall into spiritual abuse, one of the great responses you can make is a response we could say is the response of service. Decide who you're going to serve when you get involved with Christian things. Notice in verse 18, we're told that Samuel ministered not before Eli, We're told that Samuel ministered not before Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel ministered before who? The Lord. You see, whatever you decide to do in the church, this will save you untold grief. Decide that you're going to do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. That that's going to be your focus. That pleasing Jesus is really what it's all about for you. You're not going to be going for eye service or attaboys or pats on the back. You're going to be going because you realize that there is going to come a day when you stand before Jesus and that nail-scarred hand is going to reach out to you and take you by the hand and pull you up into His lap and you're going to hear these words, words almost unimaginable. Well done, good and faithful servant. And when you stop and think about that for a second, what else makes sense? What could be a greater motivator than seeing the God who created you look at you and smile and say, yeah, that's what I want. That's it way to go. Well, that's the motivation that Samuel had. But notice as well, something else that I think kept Samuel on the straight and narrow was the response of support. He had a support system beyond just what was going on there at the sanctuary. His mom, bless her heart, used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. Isn't that cute? Hey, you just see that image. You know, uh, yesterday, uh, Sarah showed up for our Harvest Festival wearing her costume and she was dressed like a little princess. A little white princess outfit with a little crown on her head. And I looked at that princess outfit and it almost looked like a wedding dress. And I'm like, no, 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 don't grow up that quick. I'm not sure I'm ready to pay for all of this yet. But when I was studying this today, I couldn't help but think that, you know, Hannah probably felt the same way seeing her little boy in his little priestly outfit standing there serving the Lord. You see, that was something else that I think kept Samuel on the straight and narrow. He had family, you see, to keep him straight. He had people in his life, people who loved him very dearly, who would encourage him to walk with the Lord. And you know, that's another thing that I think is a real guard for us as far as avoiding a spiritually abusive situation. Now, oftentimes, one of the things that leads people into a place where you know, false teachers and false apostles and prophets can do their thing, is this scam that is laid on people saying, well, you know, we're your family now. You know, those awful people, you know, that used to hang out with, you know, that used to call mom and dad. Don't call them mom and dad. We're your mom and dad. We're your family. You know, I mean, the Lord said, if you don't come after me and and hate your father and mother, so you need to hate them and you need to cut off all contact with them. Hey, There are campus cults that make a huge living doing that to kids. And they say, oh no, you can't talk to your parents. Why? Because they're afraid their parents will talk sense to them. They're afraid their parents will go, they want you to do what? They they want you to sell everything and go to Ohio and pass out tracts for them? They want you to go down to the airport and shave your head? What in the world are they talking about?